0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Dede by Mavis Gallant,
1: which was published in The New Yorker in January of 1987. At that moment, Dede did an unprecedented and courageous thing. He picked up the platter of melon crawling with wasps and took it outside, as far as the foot of the tree, and came back to applause. At least, his sister clapped, and young Madame Chevalier Crochet cried, Bravo! Bravo! Dede smiled, but then he was always smiling. The story was chosen by Anne Beattie,
0: who's the author of more than 20 books of fiction, including the story collection The Accomplished Guest and the novel A Wonderful Stroke of Luck, which was published earlier this year. Hi, Anne. Hi, Debra. So you mentioned to me that you read this story for
1: the first time last summer. How did you come across it then? Um, I'm a visiting writer at the University of Virginia this fall, and I have to give two public talks. And I was pulling books off of my shelf, just looking for different examples of some things that I wanted to mention in those talks. And I pulled down the Best American Short Stories of the 80s, which was edited by Shannon Ravenel. And I thought, oh, I've never heard of this Mavis Gallant story. It just blew me away. I mean, I just loved it. I I want to do nothing but think about this Mavis Gallant story. (laughs) What was it about this story that surprised you? Well, I could answer that in a lot of ways, I think. But the way that she moves through time, you know, I think that the liberty she takes with those leaps, and it's happening all over the place. I mean, she she works like a dragonfly or something. She's really amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. Had you been a fan of Mavis Gallant's work before that? I am, but, you know, I don't know it anywhere near as well as I should. Um, I find such immediacy in her writing that I always like it. I don't know why I love this quite as much as I love it. I I really found this an incredibly startling story. The visuals, I think, are part of it. Mm-hmm. The, the imagery of it? Yeah, the imagery of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's set...
0: Um or was written and published more than 30 years ago, I think on the eve of the 1981 French presidential elections. Oh.
1: Does it feel to you as though it belongs to a different era, or does it feel completely undated? Um, I noticed the politics of it, you know, but it, it I didn't know that. I didn't know what you just told me, and I think that's very interesting. But it didn't really seem to be an enormous factor except to make this all very believable in terms of the kind of conversation that was held and, you know, the way Gallant tells you people's opinions.
0: Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Anne Beattie
1: reading Dede by Mavis Gallant. Dede. Pascal Bruet is 14 now. He used to attend a lycée, but after his parents found out about the dealers in the street outside the gates, they changed him to a private school. Here, the situation is about the same, but he hasn't said so. He does not want to be removed again, this time perhaps to a boarding establishment away from Paris with nothing decent to eat and lights out at ten. He would not describe himself as contriving or secretive. He tries to avoid drawing attention to the responsibility clause in the treaty that governs peace between generations. Like his father, the magistrate, he will offer neutrality before launching into dissent. I'm ready to admit he will begin, or I don't want to take over the whole conversation. Sometimes the sentence comes to nothing. Like his father, he lets his eyelids droop, tries to speak lightly and slowly. The magistrate is famous for fading out of a discussion by slow degrees. At one time, he was said to be the youngest magistrate ever to fall asleep in court. He would black out when he thought he wasn't needed and snap to just as the case turned around. Apparently, he never missed a turning. He has described his own mind to Pascal. It is like a superlatively smooth car with an invisible driver in control. The driver is the magistrate's unconscious will. To Pascal, a mind is a door, ajar, or shut. His grades are good but this side of brilliant. He has a natural gift, a precise, perfectly etched memory. How will he use it? He thinks he could as easily become an actor as a lawyer. When he tells his parents so, they seem not to mind. He could turn into an actor-manager with a private theater of his own, or the director of one of the great national theaters commissioning new work refurbishing the classics, settling questions at issue with a word or two. The Bruets are tolerant parents, ready for anything. They met for the first time in May of 1968, a few yards away from a barricade of burning cars. She had a stone in her hand. When she saw him looking at her, she put it down. They walked up the Boulevard Saint-Michel together, and he told her his plan for reforming the judiciary. He was a bit older, about 26. Answering his question, she said she was from Alsace. He reminded her how the poet Paul Elwad had picked up his future wife in the street on a rainy evening. She was from Alsace, too, and starving, and in a desperate, muddled, amateurish way, pretending to be a prostitute. Well, this was not quite the same story. In 1968, the future Madame Bruet was studying to be an analyst of handwriting with employment to follow. So she had been promised in the personnel section of a large department store. In the meantime, she was staying with a Protestant Reformed church pastor and his family in Rue Fustel de Coulanges. She had been on her way home to dinner when she stopped to pick up the stone. She had a mother in Alsace and a little brother, Amide, Dede. Sylvia and I have known both sides of the barricades, the magistrate likes to say now. What he means is that they cannot be crowded into a political corner. The stone in the hand has made her a rebel, at least in his recollections. She never looks at a newspaper because of her reputation for being against absolutely everything, So he says, but perhaps it isn't exact. She looks at the pages marked culture to see what is on at the galleries. He reads three morning papers at breakfast and, if he has time, last evening's Le Monde. Reading, he narrows his eyes. Sometimes he looks as though everything he thinks and believes had been translated into a foreign language and suddenly back again. When Pascal was about nine, his father said, What do you suppose you will do one day? They were at breakfast. Pascal's uncle Amide was there. Like everyone else, Pascal called him Dede. Pascal looked across at him and said, I want to be a bachelor like Dede. His mother moaned, Oh no, and covered her face. The magistrate waited until she had recovered before speaking. She looked up, smiling, a bit embarrassed. Then he explained, slowly and carefully, that Dede was too young to be considered a bachelor. He was a student, a youth. A student, a student, he repeated, thinking perhaps that if he kept saying it, Dede would study hard. Dede had a button of a nose that looked ridiculous on someone so tall, and a mass of curly, fair hair. Because of the hair, the magistrate could not take him seriously. His private name for Dede was Harpo. That period of Pascal's life, nine rounding to ten, was also the autumn before an important election year. The elections were five months off, but already people argued over dinner and Sunday lunch. One Sunday in October, the table was attacked by wasps, drawn in from the garden by a dish of sliced melon, the last of the season, particularly fragrant and sweet. The French doors to the garden stood open. Sunlight entered and struck through the wine decanters and dissolved in the waxed tabletop in pale red and gold. From his place, Pascal could see the enclosed garden, the apartment blocks behind it, a golden poplar tree, and the wicker chairs where the guests earlier had sat with their drinks. There were two couples, the turbans older than Pascal's parents, and the Chevalier Crochets, who had not been married long. Madame Chevalier Crochet attended an art history course with Pascal's mother on Thursday afternoons. They had never been here before and were astonished to discover a secret garden in Paris with chairs, grass, a garden rake, a tree... Just as their expression of amazement was starting to run thin and patches of silence appeared, Abelarda, newly come from Cadiz, appeared at the door and called them to lunch. She said, it's ready, though that was not what Madame Bruet had asked her to say, at least not that way. The guests got up without haste. They were probably as hungry as Pascal, but didn't want to show. Abelarda went on standing staring at the topmost leaves of the poplar trying to remember what she ought to have said a few minutes later just as they were starting to eat their melon wasps came thudding against the table like pebbles thrown the adults froze as though someone had drawn a gun pascal knew that sitting still was a good way to be stung if you waved your napkin shouted orders the wasp might fly away but he was not expected to give instructions. He was here with adults to discover how conversation is put together, how to sound interesting without being forward, amusing without seeming familiar. At that moment, Dede did an unprecedented and courageous thing. He picked up the platter of melon crawling with wasps and took it outside as far as the foot of the tree and came back to applause. At least his sister clapped and young Madame Chevalier Crochet cried, «Bravo! Bravo!» Dede smiled, but then he was always smiling. His sister wished he wouldn't. The smile gave his brother-in-law another reason for calling him Harpo. Sitting down, he seemed to become entwined with his chair. He was too tall ever to be comfortable. He needed larger chairs, tables that were both higher and wider— so that he would not bump his knees or put his feet on the shoes of the lady sitting opposite. Pascal's father just said, So, no more melon. It was something he particularly liked, and there might be none now until next summer. If Dede had asked his opinion instead of jumping up so impulsively, he might have said, Just leave it, and taken a chance on getting stung. Well, no more for anyone. The guests sat a little straighter, waiting for the next course, beef, veal, or mutton, or the possibility of duck. Pascal's mother asked him to shut the French doors. He did not expect another wasp invasion, but there might be strays. Madame Chevalier Crochet remarked that Pascal was tall for his age, then asked what his age was. He is almost 10, said Madame Bruet, looking at her son with some wonder. I can hardly believe it. I don't understand time. Madame Turbin said she did not have to consult a watch to know the exact time. It must be quarter to two now. If it was, her daughter, Brigitte, had just landed in Salonica. Whenever her daughter boarded a plane, Madame Turbin accompanied her in her mind, minute by minute. Thessalonica, Monsieur Turbin explained. The Chevalier Crochets had spent their honeymoon in Sicily. If they had it to do over again, they said, they would change their minds and go to Greece. Madame Bruet said they would find it very different from Sicily. Her mind was on something else entirely, Abelarda. Probably, Abelarda had expected them to linger over a second helping of melon. Perhaps she was sitting in the kitchen with nothing to do, listening to a program of Spanish music on the radio. Madame Bruet caught a wide-awake glance from her husband interpreted it correctly, and went out to the kitchen to see. One of the men turned to Monsieur Bruet, wondering if he could throw some light on the election candidates. Unfortunate stories were making the rounds. Pascal's father was often asked for information. He had connections in Paris, like stout ropes attached to the upper civil service and to politics. One sister was married to a cabinet minister's chief of staff. Her children were taken to school in a car with a red and white and blue emblem. The driver could park wherever he liked. The magistrate's grandfather had begun as a lieutenant in the cavalry and died of a heart attack the day he was appointed head of the committee to oversee war graves. His portrait as a child on a pony hung in the dining room. The artist was said to have copied a photograph. That was why the pony looked so stiff and the colors were wrong. The room Pascal slept in had been that child's summer bedroom. The house had once been a suburban, almost a country dwelling. Now the road outside was like a highway. Even with the doors shut, they could hear Sunday traffic pouring across an intersection on the way to Bologna and the Cloud Bridge. The magistrate replied that he did not want to take over the whole conversation, but he did feel safe in saying this. Several men, none of whom he had any use for, were now standing face to face. Sometimes he felt like washing his hands of the future. Saying this, he slid his hands together. However, before his guest could show shock or disappointment, he added, but one cannot remain indifferent. This is an old country, an ancient civilization. Here, his voice faded out. We owe one has to a certain unbreakable loyalty and he placed his hands on the table calmly, one on each side of his plate. At that moment, Madame Brouet returned, her cheeks and forehead pink, as if she had got too close to a hot oven. Abelarda came along next to change the plates. She was pink in the face, too. Pascal saw the candidates lined up like rugby teams. He was allowed to watch rugby on television, His parents did not care for soccer. The players showed off, received absurd amounts of money just for kicking a ball, and there was something the matter with their shorts. With all that money, they could buy clothes that fit, Pascal's mother had said. Rugby players were different. They were the embodiment of action and its outcome in an ideal form. They got muddied for love of sport. France had won the Five Nations Tournament beating even the dreaded Welsh, whose fans always set up such eerie wailing in the stands. Actually, they were trying to sing. It must have been the way the early Celts joined in song before the Roman conquest, the magistrate had told Pascal. No one at table could have made a rugby team. They were too thin. Dede was a broomstick. Of course, Pascal played soccer at school in a small cement courtyard. The smaller boys, aged six, seven, tried to imitate Michel Platini, but they got everything wrong. They would throw the ball high in the air and kick at nothing, legs crossed over the chest, arms spread. The magistrate kept an eye on the dish Abelarda was now handing around, partridges in a nest of shredded cabbage, an entire surprise. Pascal looked over at Dede, who sat smiling to himself for no good reason. If Pascal had continued to follow his father's gaze, he might be gently told later that one does not stare at food. There was no more conversation to be had from Monsieur Brouet for the moment. Helping themselves to partridge, the guests told one another stories everybody knew. All the candidates were in a declining state of health and morality. One had to be given injections of ground-up Japanese seaweed. Otherwise, he lost consciousness, sometimes in the midst of a sentence. Others kept going on a mixture of cocaine and vitamin C. Their private means had been acquired by investing in gay bars in foreign wars and evicting the poor. Only the Ministry of the Interior knew the nature and extent of their undercover financial dealings. And yet, some of these men had to be found better than others if democracy was not to come to a standstill. As M. Brouet had pointed out, one cannot wash one's hands of the future. The magistrate had begun to breathe evenly and deeply. Perhaps the sunlight beating on the panes of the shut doors made him feel drowsy. Etienne is never quite awake or asleep, said his wife, meaning it as a compliment. She was proud of everyone related to her, even by marriage, and took pride in her father, who had run away from home and family to live in New Caledonia. He had shown spirit and a sense of initiative, like Dede with the wasps. Now that Pascal is 14, he has heard this often. But pride is not the same as helpless love. The person she loved best in that particular way was Dede. Dede had come to stay with the Brues because his mother, Pascal's grandmother, no longer knew what to do with him. He was never loud or abrupt, never forced an opinion on anyone, but he could not be left without guidance, even though he could vote and was old enough to do some of the things he did, such as sign his mother's name to a check, admittedly only once. This was his second visit, the first last spring, had not sharpened his character in spite of his brother-in-law's conversation, his sister's tender anxiety, the sense of purpose to be gained by walking his little nephew to school. Sent home to Colmar, firm handshake with the magistrate at the Gare de l'Est, tears and chocolates from his sister, presentation of an original drawing from Pascal, he had accidentally set fire to his mother's kitchen Then to his own bedclothes. Accidents, the insurance people had finally agreed, but they were not too pleased. His mother was at the present time under treatment for exhaustion with a private nurse to whom she made expensive presents. She had about as much money sense as Harpo, the magistrate said. Without lifting his head from his homework, Pascal could take in nearly everything uttered in the hall, on the stairs, and in two adjacent rooms. When they were all four at breakfast, Madame Brouet repeated her brother's name in every second sentence, wondering if Dede wanted more toast, if someone would please pass him the strawberry jam, if he had enough blankets on his bed, if he needed an extra key. He was a great loser of keys. The magistrate examined his three morning papers. He did not want to have to pass anything to Harpo. Madame Bruet was really just speaking to herself. That autumn, Dede worked at a correspondence course in preparation for a competitive civil service examination. If he was among the first dozen, eliminating perhaps hundreds of clever young men and women, he would be eligible for a post in the nation's railway system. His work would be indoors, of course. No one expected him to be out in all weathers, trudging alongside the tracks, looking for something to repair. Great artists, leaders of honor and reputation, had got their start at a desk in a railway office. Pascal's mother, whenever she said this, had to pause as she searched her mind for their names. The railway had always been a seedbed of outstanding careers, she would continue. She would then point out to Dede that their father had been a supervisor of public works. After breakfast, Dede wound a long scarf around his neck and walked Pascal to school. He had invented an apartment with movable walls. Everything one needed could be got within reach by pulling a few levers or pressing a button. You could spend your life in the middle of a room without having to stir. He and Pascal refined the invention. That was what they talked about on the way to Pascal's school. Then Dede came home and studied until lunchtime. In the afternoon, he drew new designs of his idea. Perhaps he was lonely. The doctor, looking after his mother, had asked him not to call or write for the moment. Pascal's mother believed Dede needed a woman friend, even though he was not ready to get married. Pascal heard her say, Art and science, architecture, culture... These were the factors that could change Dede's life and to which he would find access through the right kind of woman. Madame Bruet had someone in mind, Mademoiselle Turbin, who held a position of some responsibility in a travel agency. She was often sent abroad to rescue visitors or check their complaints. Today's lunch had been planned around her, but at the last minute she had been called to Greece, where a tourist bitten by a dog had received an emergency specific for rabies and believed the Greeks were trying to kill him. Her parents had come, nevertheless. It was a privilege to meet the magistrate and to visit a rare old house, one of the last of its kind still in private hands. Before lunch, Madame Turbin had asked to be shown around. Madame Bruet conducted a tour for the women, taking care not to open the door to Dede's room. There had been a fire in a wastepaper basket only a few hours before, and everything in there was charred or singed or soaked. At lunch, breaking out of politics, Monsieur Turbin described the treatment the tourists in Salonica had most probably received. It was the same the world over and incurred the use of a long needle. He held out his knife to show the approximate length. Stop, cried Madame Chevalier Crochet. She put her napkin over her nose and mouth. All they could see was her wild eyes. Everyone stopped eating, forks suspended, all but the magistrate who was pushing aside shreds of cabbage to get at the last of the partridge. Monsieur Chevalier Crochet explained that his wife was afraid of needles. He could not account for it. He had not known her as a child. It seemed to be a singular fear, one that set her apart. Meantime, his wife closed her eyes, opened them, though not as wide as before, placed her napkin neatly across her lap, and swallowed a piece of bread. Monsieur Turbin said he was sorry. He had taken it for granted that any compatriot of the great Louis Pasteur must have seen a needle or two. Needles were only a means to an end. Madame Bruet glanced at her husband pleading for help, but he had just put a bite of food into his mouth. He was always last to be served when there were guests and everything got to him cold. That was probably why he ate in such a hurry. He shrugged, meaning change the subject. "'Pascal,' she said, turning to him. At last she thought of something to say. "'Do you remember Mademoiselle Turbin, Charlotte Turbin?' "'Brigitte,' said Pascal.' I'm sure you remember, she said, not listening at all, in the travel agency, on Rue Comartin. She gave me the Corrida poster, said Pascal, wondering how this had slipped her mind. We went to see her, you and I, the time we wanted to go to Egypt. Now do you remember? We never went to Egypt. No, Papa couldn't get away just then, so we finally went back to Deauville, where Papa has so many cousins. So, you do remember Mademoiselle Turbin with the pretty auburn hair. Chestnut, said the two Turbins together. My sister, said Dede all of a sudden, indicating her with his left hand, the right clutching a wine glass. Before she got married, my mother told me, the story, whatever it was, engulfed him in laughter. A dog tried to bite her, he managed to say. You can tell us about it another time, said his sister. He continued to laugh softly, just to himself, while Abelarda changed the plates again. The magistrate examined his clean new plate. No immediate surprises. Salad, another plate. Cheese, a dessert plate. His wife had given up on Mademoiselle Turbin. Really, it was his turn now, her silence said. I may have mentioned this before, said the magistrate, and I would not wish to keep saying the same things over and over. But I wonder if you agree that the pivot of French politics today is no longer in France. The Middle East, said Monsieur Turbin, nodding his head. Washington, said Monsieur Chevalier Crochet. Washington calls Paris every morning and says, do this, do that. The Middle East and the Soviet Union, said Monsieur Turbin. There, said Monsieur Bruet. we are all in agreement. Many of the magistrate's relatives and friends thought he should be closer to government, to power. But his wife wanted him to stay where he was and get his pension. After he retired, when Pascal was grown, they would visit Tibet and the north of China and winter in Kashmir. You know, this morning, said Dede, getting on with something that was on his mind, Another time, said his sister, never mind about this morning. It is all forgotten. Etienne is speaking now. This morning, the guests had no idea, couldn't begin to imagine what had taken place here in the dining room at this very table. Dede had announced, overjoyed, I've got my degree, for Dede was taking a correspondence course that could not lead to a degree of any kind. It must have been just his way of trying to stop studying so that he could go home. Degree, the magistrate folded yesterday's Le Mans carefully before putting it down. What do you mean, degree? Pascal's mother got up to make fresh coffee. I'm glad to hear it, Dede, she said. A degree in what, said the magistrate. Dede shrugged as if no one had bothered to tell him. It came just the other day, he said. I've got my degree, and now I can go home. Is there something you could show us? There was just a letter, and I lost it, said Dede. A real diploma costs 2,000 francs. I don't know where I'd find the money. The magistrate did not seem to disbelieve. That was because of his training. But then he said, You began your course about a month ago? I had been thinking about it for a long time, said Dede. And now they have awarded you a degree. You are perfectly right. It's time you went home. You can take the train tonight. I'll call your mother. Pascal's mother returned, carrying a large white coffee pot. I wonder where your first job will be, she said. Why were she and her brother so remote from things as they are? Perhaps because of their mother, the grandmother in Colmar. Once she had taken Pascal by the chin and tried to force him to look her in the eye. She had done it to her children. Pascal knows now that you cannot have your chin held in a vise And undividedly meet a blue stare. Somewhere at the back of the mind is a second self with eyes tight shut. Dede and his sister could seem to meet any glance, even the magistrate's when he was being most nearly wide awake. They seemed to be listening, but the person he thought he was talking to, trying to reach the heart of, was deaf and blind. Pascal's mother listens when she needs to know what might happen next. All Pascal understood for the moment was that when Dede had mentioned taking a degree, he was saying something he merely wished were true. "'We'll probably never see you once you start to work,' said Pascal's mother, pouring Dede's coffee. The magistrate looked as if such great good luck was not to be expected. Abelarda, who had gone upstairs to make the beds, screamed from the head of the staircase that Dede's room was full of smoke.' Abelarda moved slowly around the table, carrying a plum tart, purple and gold, caramelized all over its surface, and a bowl of cream. Madame Turbin glanced at the tart and shook her head no. Monsieur Turbin was not allowed sugar now, and she had got out of the habit of eating desserts. It seemed unfair to tempt him. It was true, her husband said, she had even given up making sweets on his account, he described her past achievements, her famous chocolate mousse with candied bitter orange peel, her celebrated pineapple flan. My semolina crown mold with apricot sauce, she said. I must have given the recipe away a hundred times. Madame Chevalier Crochet wondered if she could have a slice half the size of the wedge Abelarda had already prepared. Abelarda put down the bowl of cream and divided the wedge in half the half-piece was still too much. Abelarda said it could not be cut again without breaking into a mess of crumbs. Monsieur Chevalier-Crochet said to his wife, For God's sake, just take it and leave what you can't eat. Madame Chevalier-Crochet replied that everything she said and did seemed to be wrong. She had better just sit here and say and do nothing. Abelarda, crooning encouragement, pushed onto her plate a fragment of pastry and one plum. No cream, she said, too late. Madame Bruet looked at the portrait of her husband's grandfather, then at her son, perhaps seeking a likeness. Sophie Chevalier-Crochet had seemed lively and intelligent at their history of art class. Madame Bruet had never met the husband before and was unlikely ever to lay eyes on him again. She accepted large portions of tart and cream to set an example in case the other two ladies had inhibited the men. Monsieur Turbin, after having made certain that no extra sugar had been stirred into the cream, took more cream than tart. His wife, watching him closely, sipped water over her empty plate. It's only fruit, he said. The magistrate held himself to all the crumbs and fragments of burnt sugar on the dish, He rattled the spoon in the bowl of cream, scraping the sides. There was nearly none left. It was the fault of Monsieur Chevalier Crochet, who had gone on filling his plate as though in a dream until Abelarda moved the bowl away. The guests finished drinking their coffee at half-past four and left at a quarter to five. When they had gone, Madame Bruet lay down, not on a couch or a settee, but on the living room floor, she stared at the ceiling and told Pascal to leave her alone. Abelarda, Dede, and the magistrate were up in Dede's room. Abelarda helped him pack. Late that night, the magistrate drove him to the Gare de l'Est. Dede came back to Paris about a year ago. He is said to be different now. He has a part time job with a television polling service. Every day he is given a list of telephone numbers in the Paris area and he calls them to see what people were watching the night before and which program they wish they had watched instead. His mother has bought him a one-room place overlooking Parc de Montserie. The Bruets have never tried to get in touch with him or invited him to a meal. Dede's Paris, unknown, foreign almost, lies at an unmapped distance from Pascal's house. One night, not long ago, when all three were having dinner, Pascal said, What if Dede just came to the door? He meant the front door, of course, but his parents glanced at the glass doors and the lamps reflected in the dark panes, so that night was screened from sight. Pascal imagined Dede standing outside, watching and smiling with that great mop of hair. He is almost as tall as Dede now. Perhaps his father had not really taken notice of his height, it came about so gradually, but when Pascal got up to draw a curtain across the doors that night at dinner, his father looked at him as if he were suddenly setting a value on the kind of man he might become. It was a steady look, neither hot nor cold. For a moment Pascal said to himself, He will never fall asleep again. As for his mother, she sat smiling and dreaming, still hoping for some reason to start loving Dede once more.
0: That was Anne Beattie, reading Dede by Mavis Gallant. The story was published in The New Yorker in January of 1987 and was included in Gallant's collection Across the Bridge, which was published by Random House in 1993. The story with this long description of the ways in which Pascal's like his father, you know, the, how he wants to be neutral and not offer dissent and let his eyelids droop and speak slowly <laughs> and so on. <laughs> yeah. And, and he seems different from his father only in that he has this, you know, precise, perfect memory and he might rather be an actor than a lawyer. Why do you think we get all of that detail about Pascal, about
1: his resemblance
0: to the magistrate? when most of it isn't really at play in the story?
1: Well, I think the vulnerability of being uh, an adolescent, you know, a young boy in the context of this story, uh, it's interesting because what Pascal thinks he's supposed to do on the day of the story is observe adult behavior so that he can learn (laughs) how one is supposed to be. And of course, none of us would want to observe this behavior and think that this was how we were supposed to be. So in a way, I think, You know, Gallant just makes a bold move at the beginning. She focuses very much on Pascal, but almost immediately manages to contextualize him in a much more complicated uh, context in which, you know, we slowly get filled in also on the background of the parents, the implied difference between the parents. And then, of course, that most startling of all revelation that really he looks a lot like Harpo. He looks a little, you know, he looks quite a lot like Uncle Dede. And, you know, <laughs> Uncle Dede is fidgeting around. He's too tall for his chair. He's wrapping his legs around the chair. That seems Pascal-like. And similarly, of course, what Pascal does seems Dede-like. And so it it, it could have been a more predictable story, of course, had the most important force, Dede, never been in it.
0: Yeah. And as you mentioned, we get this, this chronological framing. So we start the story in a kind of present tense where Pascal is 14 and we end the story you know, when he's a, a teenager again. Mm-hmm. And in between, we, we have a flashback, five, four or five years.
1: Yes. That's pretty radical.
0: Yeah. So why why do you think we have that frame?
1: I mean, the action of the story all takes place in this flashback. Well, my guess about that would be that... In a way, it's kind of a miscue to the reader in a way that ultimately seems beneficial to the story. It's kind of like um, an indeterminate amount of time passes and that she would be kind of loosey-goosey with how she moves around and directs our attention to things in a way sort of parallels the way that we all feel. Where did that time go? How did that happen? you know, Gallant just thinks, boy, time is on a trajectory, and why should I pretend we can control it when really, retrospectively, it was nothing but gaps, you know? Let's talk
0: about the wasps. Mm-hmm. What <laughs> What do you think, you know, we, we have this contrast between these sort of conventional frozen people at the table who are completely powerless to act and, and Dede who sort of acts without thinking and saves the day, or maybe doesn't because Mm -hmm. he's taken the magistrate's favorite appetizer. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think we're supposed to read Dede's act as an act of bravery or an act of stupidity?
1: Um, It's hard to judge someone when you are convinced, as I was at least when I was reading, that they're just acting spontaneously. It seems to be kind of sidestepping or having to do that. So it becomes more complicated in a way. The wasps are just inherently so frightening to the reader, you know, that you think there's going to be a crisis that's going to be directly involved with these wasps, that certainly somebody's going to get stung, et cetera, et cetera. But things don't turn out as one might predict. And that seems to pertain to the larger story itself, because no no one would have imagined that this this was where and how the story was going to end at the end, you know?
0: Yeah. I can't always tell in the course of the story what we're supposed to think what Gallant thinks is going on with Day-Day. Is he just eccentric? Is he completely delusional? Is he mentally
1: ill? Or is he just kind of a hapless kid
0: who doesn't quite know what he's doing?
1: I agree with you. I I wouldn't know, you know, an easy label to put on him either. And I think even within whatever he's functioning as, he's an oddball, right? (laughs) Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you kind of like it that the that the magistrate nicks, nicknames him Harpo, because that brings in the whole idea of slapstick comedy and all that kind of stuff that isn't inappropriate. What I couldn't fit into the story as well as I would like to, though, is the, the setting things on fire. And we're never there in the moment when he does it, so we don't really know. Um, it, it's almost as like he's just sort of the incarnation of chaos, which is the last thing the magistrate and his wife want in their orderly world. And yet there he is.
0: And yet there he is. And and he seems drawn to danger, you know. He yes. dives in with the wasps. So maybe he's just fascinated by fire. We never see anything from his perspective. We only see how other people react to him. Yeah,
1: Yeah, very hard to do to create a character in which the character doesn't just seem, you know, to be moved by marionette strings or something like that when that's true. But I do think even when he bursts out with a little bit of a fragment and he's trying to tell what he thinks is a funny story, you know, and then (laughs) a dog bit her. I mean, you just feel for everyone concerned, you know, when people do that. You don't know where to look and you don't know quite what to say, but there he is. He's existing emotionally, certainly, in his own reality, but it kind of finds its parallel for different reasons in the young boy who's still being formed. You know, your family is what your family is when you're that age. They may embarrass you, whatever, you know, however kids of that age want to characterize it, but you're part of that unit, and so... The only freedom from that really is day day
0: yeah and and in a sense day day is not so unlike uh his sister madame bruet she mm-hmm. and and she even she ends the story kind of sitting smiling to herself in the way that that Dede used to do so mm-hmm. you wonder you wonder a little what is happening in in her mind too, you know she seems very um She's gone into this very conventional marriage, but in fact, the way she met her husband was she was walking home and sort of aimlessly picks up a rock to throw because she's ended up in the middle of a student protest. Yeah. And then he comes along, so she puts it down, and you know, <laughs> off they
1: go. Exactly. Um, exactly. So her motivations are also completely obscure. I agree, totally. but I But I think also you always get that kind of push-pull or that sort of unspoken agreement with the magistrate and Pascal's mother, you know, they, there was something more subversive going on before the moment of the story. But we begin the story when they've arrived at some sort of implicit understanding with one another. And it's kind of a sealed system, you know. You see you see like the 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 aftershock of something, I guess, is what you see here, rather than any of the moments that other writers would think was their most sensational material and dramatize it.
0: Right. It's all it's all in the past, it's all off stage. Yeah. And in a way she gives us the end first. The first jump back in time is to the magistrate asking Pascal what he wants to be one day, what he wants mm-hmm. to do one day. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that he has to make a choice between his father's way and his mother and day day and of course he says, "I want to be like day <laughs> day," and they're all going, "Oh my God, no, 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 um and then by the time he's fourteen, he's become you know the spitting image of his father in, ma- in many ways, so he made that choice,
1: yes, yes, he did, but then when the very ending comes i'm I'm just you know chilled by the awareness of the magistrate assessing him and trying to make an educated guess about what really will become of his son as though as though one is to be judged by what they become yeah not not a very pleasant warm feeling in in a way
0: no and and, and she gallant refers to the the assessing look as neither hot nor cold it's mm-hmm. just steady so we don't quite know what the father's judging? Mm-hmm. What his what his conclusion is? I suppose. Right. Um, so with um, with Dede and that uh, that sliding room and the sister who just adores him, what do you think is going on? It's as though the structure of his family, Dede's family, has been built around keeping him contained and safe, and everyone's got to jump around, you know, it ends with his mother buying him an apartment. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, in a different kind of Paris, yeah. Like yeah. like they would like it very much if he... It's fine that he exists, but could he please do it in a parallel reality, yeah.
0: Yeah, but his sister's just so desperate to love him and, and pass him the strawberry jam. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to know how that dynamic was created or what it's based on.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, I guess... I guess it didn't seem all that mysterious in that, I mean, what I would bring to the story, or any story, I suppose, um, considering a family in this way, is that sense of privacy within families, and it's almost as though Gallant dovetails her own sensibility to that like well they I, I might let them reveal themselves but i'm not going to betray them and it is ultimately kind of withholding but it seems to me to be quite apt because it takes different forms but they're both very reticent people i mean the magistrate really would like it if people were simply you know replicants of himself and the mother it's a little it, it is a little less clear and that bond that she feels that with her brother is real. Also, why does she stop acting on it? You know, why does time just pass and suddenly Day Day is elsewhere and he doesn't even come to dinner anymore? Clearly something's happened. You yeah. know, he gets
0: sent back, he lights that fire, it endures this terrible day in which she's got to put on this lunch while knowing that the upstairs is full of smoke. Mm-hmm. And um, he gets sent off and then three years go by. Mm-hmm. Um and then he's changed, so I suppose to me, the implication was he'd been somehow institutionalized or treated or or something, but we, we can't really know.
1: yeah, no, well, certainly, I mean, f- fair enough to you know think there's some inference there, of course, there must have there must have been something, but i like I like the way too you, you hear about this dreary job that he has, but even the specifics of that fit into the other world of the story in a lot of ways. So, you know, what is he doing? He's calling people and asking, what did you watch on television last night versus what do you wish you had watched? And that's no different than the minor characters early in the story that went on a honeymoon to the wrong place. If they had to do over again, (laughs) they would do it elsewhere. But you know, that says so much. And then of course the parents have left whatever more active, um, past they've had and they've forced this bond for safety with one another, there was a whole life before the world of the story, before the moment at which Gallant decided to start narrating.
0: Mm-hmm. The one the one hint we get about um, uh, Madame Bruet and, and Dede's childhood is this uh, vision Pascal has of, of their mother, his grandmother, mm-hmm. getting your chin in a vice grip. And mm-hmm. making you look her in the eye. And, and at that point, he says, there's no way not to then have some secret hidden self that's retreating from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get the sense not, not necessarily of an abusive parent, but of someone who tried to deny privacy. Mm-hmm. And, yes, exactly. And then these, yeah. these poor children had to sort of create it in a, in a kind of
1: dream world. Yes, that's very well. Yeah, it is a kind of dream world, isn't it? I hadn't thought about that. But you can see also the proclivity to turn inward if you were in effect tortured in that way, right? Yeah. I mean, that's and that is kind of eloquently written that yeah, you can make somebody look right in the eye, but there's another person inside you and you you can't get to the soul of that person. You can only you can only technically engage them. You can't you can't do more than that.
0: Yeah, that that person was is not meeting your gaze. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah,
1: creepy and it's a... creepy. <laughs> it really is. I mean, and it just seems to me to be. You know, we've always got these things like the wasp might bite. The mother might go even farther and you know really beat these children or something like that. So there's always a sense that you're not sure that we're even going to play within the confines of the story. And the story, it seems to me, has something to do with, in effect, a false sense of security. You know, trying to keep the world at bay. But I mean, there might be the wasps, and Day Day might not be there. And in any other story, the wasps would have been brought there to bite. You know, it's that—that's what I love about Mavis Gallant. That she she knows the moves. She knows, literally, what others would do, and she just doesn't go near it. hmm Yeah. And
0: and we, in a sense, get to slightly conflicting possible endings for Pascal or possible futures for Pascal because we know at the beginning that he's just like his dad. And at the end, we know that he's actually quite like Dede, mm-hmm. physically at least. And there's no way of knowing That's the right. future.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: There's that uh, sense that right in the first paragraph that he's dissembling a little— you know, he's hiding the details of his new school so that he doesn't get shipped off to boarding school.
1: Oh, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. That does that does fit
0: into the pattern very well. Yeah. So he may also have learned to keep the secret self somewhere. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. Yeah. I don't want to think about this 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 interminable awful lunch, <laughs> which never ends, and the poor magistrate never gets enough food because he's served last. Um lot is just so perfect with all the social cultural signifiers and of of sort of bourgeois culture in France <laughs> of this period. I mean, no one else could take you so so closely in there. But at the same time, why is this lunch such an ordeal? I mean, it's just eight people sitting down to eat what sounds like a delicious meal <laughs> and <laughs> making
1: small talk. Yeah. But everyone's on edge. I would I would assume though that, you know, I mean I I can't typify the French by the way, you know, people who are phobic would say, "Oh, you know, they have such standards." I mean, whatever the clichés are, but certainly she puts them under that cloud of that kind of stereotype. Um they're they're all worth watching. They're all understood through their unique neuroses basically that we get to watch and we can't look away from. Uh, I mean, that horrible piece of endlessly cut pie or whatever it is, you know, (laughs) and finally even Abelarda says, you know, that's it. (laughs) I mean, what do you want me to do, ruin it totally and make it only crumbs? But it's as though all of these people, control is the word, I mean, all of these people are working very hard to stay within certain parameters that, that are socially convenient, but it doesn't offer us their inner life except to say that this is a pressure cooker, and it can't be, they must be paying some price for acting as they act. And it also just goes on forever. They leave at quarter to five. It was lunch. <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> That's true. Yes, <laughs> That's a very good observation. They do. uh kind of went right by me, yeah.
0: Madame Brouet is promptly on her back on the floor telling everybody to back go away. On the away. floor
1: exactly <laughs> exactly. So yes, you're right. So we know she's paid a price. Everybody seems um particularly restricted in their in their emotions in in, in the story to me. Yeah.
0: You know. And she's exhausted by the tension of having to juggle, you know, her husband's needs and and demands with Her intense love for her awkward brother who's going to
1: say the wrong thing. Exactly, exactly. And then we just have to take it on faith that the couple understands the other's, you know, facial expression and even understands what one must do. Like, oh, probably he thinks that Abelarda thinks that we're going to be longer there. And so maybe I should run to the kitchen. I mean, it becomes pretty labyrinthine. You don't need too many examples of that to say that this is the convention that they've decided on. I I found it very funny, ultimately, extremely funny. And of course, I mean I, I certainly identify with Abelarda too, you know. And why can't she just say? I mean, there it is too, in that little distilled moment when she says, It's ready and then she thinks, My God, this is a faux pas. What but, but what's wrong with it? It is ready. It wasn't. And we yeah, have that's to say not what too. she was told to say. Exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, she should have announced luncheon is served or you know.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah who do you think uh, Mavis Gallant wants us to feel for in this story? I mean, should it be Madame Bruet, who's bearing the burden of everybody's failures, you know, from Abelarda to her brother to her husband falling asleep at the table? Or mm-hmm. should it be Pascal, who's just kind of a, a witness, wide-eyed witness to everything? Or should it be Dede, who's clearly never going to have a degree
1: mm-hmm. or a fulfilled life,
0: though that may not be what he wants.
1: Well, you know, when you ask the question that way, it kind of points up for me the visceral feeling that I had in this story, which is one of great loss, you know, like opportunities missed. I don't mean literally; I mean interpersonally. Uh, you know, and Pascal's just kind of, he would be the free mover, except that he's almost like a stand-in for the writer. He's almost just there to be the observer. And so I do think it's Pascal's story, but it, there would be no story even for Pascal without Dede. So of course you would yeah. call the story Dede. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned earlier that that, that it was the, the visuals of the story that drew you in the mm-hmm. most. Mm-hmm. Which What did you mean by that?
1: Well, she works like a camera. I mean, if she wants to go in in close-up, she does. If she wants to withdraw, she does. It's, uh, she's very daring. And she suggests that we might also imaginatively go to the mind of Abelarda, who's in the kitchen, and then we might go back to the table, and meanwhile, Dede is doing something else. I, I think it's like that that is a kind of controlled chaos within within the story, and it's a different way that the writer is perceiving than the individuals would perceive it it does almost seem like everything's in technicolor sometimes but then it goes right back to drab. <laughs> mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's
0: very cinematic mm-hmm. and it's 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 Mavis Gallant holding that camera and kind of
1: whirling around on it, on her dolly. <laughs> mhm. Mm-hmm. But never in a show-offy way, you know. I really have no personal acquaintance with people like this. I absolutely believe the reality of this. It almost seems like maybe a lead-in to a fairy tale gone wrong or something like that. I just think that she, she puts the elements there. She deals with them uniquely. She doesn't let the obvious be something that's going to manifest itself in the story and determine the story. But really, these are all, they're kind of, they're not shards, but the story is sort of like confetti that's been tossed up. And if not for that question by the boy at the end, I, I don't know that, It would be the same story. In other words, everything that he calculated was going to be salvation to him, all the subjugating, all the denial, all the complicity, all that kind of stuff, that too can be taken away from you, which is really a kind of horrific and revelatory notion.
0: Yeah. Taken away, but the result is Pascal is perhaps someone he wants to be. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: But the mother becomes very ambiguous at the end, doesn't she? Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that her real love is Day-Day. And then yeah. suddenly he isn't? You know, wow.
0: And she's, she's hoping for a reason to make him that again. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anne.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: Mavis Gallant, who died in 2014, was the author of two novels and more than a dozen story collections, including The Muslim Wife and From the 15th District. She was a winner of the Governor General's Award in Canada, where she was from, as well as the Ray Award for the short story and the Penn Nabokov Award. She published 116 stories in The New Yorker between 1951 and 1995. Anne Beattie has published 11 story collections and 9 novels, including Mrs. Nixon and this year's A Wonderful Stroke of Luck. She was also a winner of the Ray Award for the short story and the Penn Malamud Award. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1974. You can download 150 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including ones in which Karen Russell, Antonia Nelson, and Margaret Atwood read other stories by Mavis Gallant, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.